You're listening to a podcast from the University of Warwick. This series was produced as part of the conference All Together Now, British Theatre After Multiculturalism. The conference was organised in collaboration with the British Theatre Consortium. In this episode, we hear the question and answer session from the panel discussion Axis Schmaxis. I thought it might be worth underlining some of the, the points you were making earlier, Mark, about the, 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 the Radio 4 audience, just with that, uh, another Radio 4 experience of Monday morning. I don't know how many people were listening to the Today programme when Nick Griffin, our new MEP, uh, one of the first things he said in his interview with John Humphreys was to criticise casting a, a black man to play Friar Tuck mm. in the BBC's Robin Hood. Where, I mean, it only says something about, it just underlies that these debates about kind of colourblind casting and so on in the arts are connected very well no and again but you see the thing about that is that on the radio 4 websites that was another thread that i think had to certainly be moderated and perhaps even closed down um was that um even on uh radio there is this sense that um i mean because people you can look people up and you can find out but um there's a certain section of the audience who will check even in a classic serial that they're using the wrong people on the radio to play them now, I mean, from any level, I think political or indeed um, from an acting viewpoint is complete nonsense because um, as, uh, well, Patterson Joseph said, in fact, on one of my programmes, I mean, you would think that radio is where you could just play anything, right. but there is a section of the audience that won't allow you that. Um, and then it gets comic because you know, there's a desperation now to get publicity for things, so publicity pictures are sent out. And so radio isn't invisible in the way it used to be, but even so, um, no, it, it's horrifying, I think. Um, not want, I mean, obviously not wanting to, to play that down. I mean, they, people who write on those message boards are crackers, though, aren't they? I mean, they, <laughs> <coughs> I mean, they no, they, but you see, they're influential, though. They, I mean, I, true. The, uh, as I say, I mean, I, that's why I told that, that story. I mean, that, um, that particular young writer was going to stop broadcasting because right. of this stuff. Um, and they do take it. Um, it is taken seriously. Right. Um, uh, you know, there were even wobbles. I mean, not at the highest level, because the control of Radio 4 was absolutely... Um, uh, be in every way behind Lenny and behind that program and the project, but um, no, th- there were wobbles within uh, the BBC about you know maybe we went too far on this. You know we gave too much coverage to it uh, because it was in bulletins and so on. Yeah. Um, obviously, I want to throw uh, this uh, open to the audience. I thought I just just before I do that, while you you have a moment to to, to polish your your gems, um, <laughs> uh, I just thought I, I wanted to give David and Barbara perhaps an, uh, an opportunity to answer each other because clearly your, your, your papers, your, your talks were somewhat antithetical. I thought maybe, if David, do you want to start just perhaps by responding to some things Barbara was saying? Well, I, I, I was conscious and probably guilty of, of, of some, some slides on the mental here in that, in that uh, obviously instrumentalism and access are not the same thing. Uh, but I think uh, instrumentalism during the first period of the Labour government justified the low audiences. In other words, the arts weren't able to justify themselves in terms of of, of reach, so they justified them tell, uh, and and it's very difficult to justify yourself in terms of intensity, how do you measure it? So they found something that you could measure, which was, um, or or at least you could aspire, or at least felt measurable, um, which was doing social good. And I think that's how that came about. And I was, you know, Barbara and I do have differences of emphasis on certain things, but but there are many other things in which you could not get a cigarette paper between us. 
and I was to a certain extent describing an argument rather than rather than putting 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 a case. But but I think I, I think we have to. I mean, as Barbara was speaking, she was using the word access, and that was clearly a good word which people were sympathetic to. Um, during Mark's thing, he used the word ratings, and that there was a, a frisson of boo went round the audience. <laughs> ratings measure access. That's what they do. Ratings and access are the same thing. High ratings are successful access, and low ratings are unsuccessful access. Beyond that argument, you get onto value judgments. Uh, I think you should get onto value judgments, and I have a suspicion that theatre will never um, overcome the considerable barriers that every piece of quantitative research uh, um, indicates. And I speak as one who, who went out, you know, in the early 70s, uh, find to do the kind of work which I know Frances still, Frances Rifkin still does. So her, her presence is a reproach. Uh, but I stopped doing that because it wasn't working, and that there was an audience for theatre, for the kind of serious political theatre that I wanted to do in the England of the 70s but it was going to the Royal Court, it was going to the RSC, it wasn't coming to working men's clubs to look at stuff by agitprop companies that I was part of going around the country. And I think then, uh, I mean, my sort of Damascan moment, to refer to St. Paul, uh, was the realisation that because, because we weren't doing it for everybody didn't mean that we should do it for nobody. Um, and I, uh, that's a view I find you know, historically difficult to, 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 to put forward, uh, but I think the lack of confidence the sense of being winded, the sense of being, which Thatcherism inflicted on us all, because Thatcher didn't really believe in subsidised theatre at all, or subsidised arts, um, I, I, I think has led us to a view that if, if, if we can't appeal to everybody, if we can't move from access to ratings, then we shouldn't be doing it at all, and I think that has to be countered. Okay. Uh, I, well, I use the word confidence myself, and I absolutely agree. It is a question of finding the confidence to express things in, in a language that makes sense for all of us. And I think that we talk about diversity, we often assume that means race. I think you know, the definition of the word is much broader than that. Um, and there has to be a diversity, I would have thought, in the sort of theatre and the audiences that it reaches and the people that make the theatre, because we are a diverse world. Um, I completely agree with you, Mark, that the problem is how we measure success. And that's what's got us into all the trouble in the past and continues to engage us um, now. I thought James Pennell talked about targetolatry, not targetology, uh -huh. but I may be wrong, but if I am wrong, I enjoy my misunderstanding of it, because <laughs> it's not a studying of the targets, but it's worshipping them that's the problem. Um, and I think that the Arts Council, uh, in the past and probably still now, but hopefully not in the future, is guilty for sort of perpetuating this by not explaining the difference between what it considers to be a success measure and what it believes it needs to track in order to monitor the impact of either its um, policies or indeed things we're being asked to track on behalf of the government. So automatically, if those of you who receive our money are asked to count something, you assume that a high number is a good thing. Well, maybe it's not. Or maybe it's not a good thing for you or your audience or your work. So I think it's the, tar the, the, the worship of targets and not really um, putting them alongside those value judgments that are the problem. And we avoid value judgments, don't we, because cause we can't agree. And perhaps we should celebrate the fact we can't agree and not be quite so scared about it. Mark. Can I just mention, uh, beside Radio 3, I wanted to have um, a long discussion in um, a restaurant with David Edgar about uh, whether Radio 3 can or cannot be justified. Um, <laughs> the How many courses did it take? Well, it, took, it took a couple of hours because David began from the position that obviously it could, and in fact, I began from the position that um, by any possible measure, it's impossible to justify uh, Radio 3. 
Um, <laughs> and yet, which is the paradox, um, it's probably a very good thing that it's there. But I mean, Radio 3 is the extreme example of that. I mentioned the ratings and the AI figure, uh, but there's another one they do, which is cost per listener or viewer, which is obviously the, is quite a sensible way of doing it, in fact, because um, it costs a lot more to make uh, some types of drama than others, so you can work out, and on that basis, you can protect the drama of BBC Four, for example, because although they get fewer, um, far fewer viewers, um, you can do it on, they actually cost less per viewer than EastEnders does, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, it doesn't matter what measure you choose. Um, on cost per listener, Radio 3 is the most expensive um, radio station in the entire world, um, <laughs> by, um, by a long way. Um, measured against any other, um, but you see that you get to this question of equipment, you see there probably is no other equipment station, but measured against um, other networks that do the kind of things they do. So for example, classical music or speech, their audience figures are way, way below um, anyone else's. Um, they uh, use public money to sustain um, at least three, I think it is orchestras, um, all their pensions. You're paying for all of that, all the pensions for all these people forevermore. Um, and so it's very easy to prove that it can't be um, justified. Uh, and yet there is, um, and it's, uh, that's why I think it is relevant. Is the, I think it's perhaps, it's the last um, example I know where a significant number of people, at least within the um, commentariat, as we are known, um, would say, oh no, but that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. It just is a good thing in itself, Radio 3, um, and should be uh, kept going. On the other hand, and this is why it goes around in circles and why it took us so many hours, um, the radio, the commentariat are the kind of people who listen to Radio 3, and so therefore are they the, are they the people to make um, that decision? But um, it's often, I won't say how low some of the figures are, but I once had um, a conversation with um, a critic and writer um, who I won't name, except uh, actually in Clive James's most recent book of um, essays, he has a go at this person, and he said, uh, he's one of those critics who has initials instead of a first name, and I forget his surname. So anyway, <laughs> he's, um, he's one of those. And he, 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 was, he is in, we haven't mentioned the E word yet so far, but anyway, he, he actually, he's an old fashioned elitist, and he just says, um, look, Radio 3 is excellent and therefore it's justified. But then he dangerously went further in an email exchange we were having, and he said, the fact that millions of people are prepared to listen to this kind of programming shows um, you know, what happens if you make this kind of program. And um, I said millions, I said how many people do you think, he'd been on a particular Radio 3 program, I said just a matter of interest, how many people do you think listened? And he said, oh, well, well, well you know, it wouldn't be a lot, it would be you know, maybe a couple of million. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I had the figure and I said, no, well they, um, I said the official figure is 22,000, <laughs> but, um, uh, when you're measuring that low down, because it's only one person writing in their diary, so you can't, um, uh, and then if they go on holiday, it doesn't have an audience at all, I think, anyway. Um, but, uh, and he was absolutely horrified and, and really couldn't believe it. And there's, um, but this is, and I say, I'm not, I'm really not attacking Radio 3. I mean, there are, at Radio 4, we do occasionally get overheated and say that Radio 3 has a sick note from Matron, which um, is what um, we tend to think, because they are insulated from any of the arguments over having to reach an audience. Um, but it is very complicated because it just can't be justified um, in any way at all. There's a particular program they do on Sunday night, which is called the Radio Feature, which has some of the finest, if you like this kind of thing, has some of the finest radio feature making um, that there has ever been. 
um, but the audience is so low that um, a previous managing director of BBC Radio um, did actually send a memo saying that it really, it's an old joke in broadcasting that said it really would be cheaper to just um, copy some CDs and send them out to the people who listen rather than actually. <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, because transmitters are quite expensive rather than actually troubling the transmitter um, with it. Uh, and, you know, ultimately when uh, all radio and TV is on um, the net, but then there isn't yet a cost model for any of that, an economic model. Um, it would be cheaper in that way, but I just think therefore Radio 3 is relevant. Okay, uh, Barbara's coming and then I will hand it over to, to you. Just just before you throw it open, um, David, in taking a bash at the Arts Council, made a side swipe at um, event large-scale outdoor, what he called content light theatre. And I'd just be very interested to know whether you agree with him or whether maybe he meant text light theatre and perhaps the two are not the same and perhaps you can have text-based theatre that is also sometimes content light. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, do, uh, of course. Collect the instruments, and then uh, 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 let's see. Uh, who who wants to start? There's a, a question just over here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Hassan Mohammed Ali from the Arts Council. Uh, firstly, I wanted to thank um, Mark, really, for um, contextualising the debate, really, by saying there is a very disturbing um, underbelly to this argument around multiculturalism, which I think is expressed on some of those, those threads on those websites, and we're not talking about um, a, a battle of ideas in some kind of abst abstract way. And, I mean, I think that's very clear to me in the light of what happened last week. For example, Barry Rutter is now represented in Europe by a guy who's a National Front um, out-and-out fascist. And I'm quite proud of it, it seems to me. You know, something is changing in, in British society. And the argument about multiculturalism, I think we should debate it, but we should also be aware there are other people out there and other forces who, to be honest, um, uh, have a particular um, reason for attacking notions of multiculturalism, whatever we think they are. So I think we should be careful about how we phrase these things, how we frame these things, because I don't think they're, they're things without consequence in the real world. Um, I was quite interested uh, um, I, um, in terms of the, 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 um, the way in which uh, you mentioned Burne Jones. And I think that's quite interesting, quite revealing for me in one sense, because of course Burne Jones was um, a guy who um, was a follower of John Ruskin, who believed that industrialization was awful, and through and his, his notion, I love his art, by the way, but basically his art is all about throwing us back to some um, time of medieval guilds when England was a, a, a green and pleasant land. It was a, it was a fiction, but it's, you know, it's a very beautiful fiction, if you like. I think uh, people like Morris actually could actually um, integrate actually modern capitalism and, and progress in a, in a much better way. And when I look at the title of today's conference, for me, as a, uh, a person of colour who's, who's worked around theatre for 25 years, um, I, could, I, I see another kind of title there. Altogether again, British theatre before multiculturalism. Because for me, I feel, actually, that I'm a, a, um, I'm, I'm a complete spectator while someone else des decides my fate, really, about whether or not, actually, I should be allowed into British theatre, or my voice or my experience should be allowed into British theatre at all. And it seems to me, actually, you know, 
a left-wing playwright should understand in one sense that actually it's about power. It's not actually about middle class or white people or anything like that. It's a, it's a question of power. And where, who seeds power and on, on what basis? I think Mark gave a very good uh, a reason why actually intervention is actually the only way of actually going about things. That history doesn't just roll it, um, evolve itself into some nirvana where we all get an uh, equal um, bite of the cake. In actual fact, someone has to intervene and shift the balance of power somewhere along the line to allow actually different voices to come in. And for me, it's about the art, actually, at the end of the day, actually, because I think, actually, history in the modern world is made in the cities, really. I don't care where you look across the world, that is the case. And our inner cities in this country are multicultural places where people battle out their lives, there are all sorts of conflicts and comings together, and new history is being made on a day-to-day -day scale. And I just don't see it on the British stage. And I think, to be honest, as long as there is this monocultural um, vision and preoccupation on the British stage, to be honest, I just see it fading into complete irrelevance. I think it will be very, very difficult to get audiences to come to British theatre in 20 years down the line if the, if the kind of stuff which we see now. I mean, to be honest, I, I, was, I know this is debate for tomorrow, and I'll finish on this. I was personally insulted. I went to see England people very nice. I was personally insulted to see, actually, my experience um, reduced to a cartoon caricature on stage. And after 25 years in British theatre, to see, actually, a playwright allowing an audience to laugh at the word nigger without a hint of irony. And I think, to be honest, you know, I think we should be, should be very, very careful about where we think we're going to. It's okay to, um, to um, uh, criticise multiculturalism, but where do you think you're going? And who do you think you're going, going along with? These are crucial arguments for me. Okay, there's another uh, question just here. Need the microphone, yeah. Send yeah. it back. There we are, yeah. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> um, Deborah Bestick, Oval House Theatre. Um, you see, I completely question, uh, Barbara Bluer opened some of the questioning of, of this dichotomy between art and excellence and what came to be called instrumental mechanistic art. Um, I, uh, I was at, I was a keynote speaker in fact, at the Demos Valuing Culture uh, think tank event some years ago, very shortly after Nicholas Heitner made his, wrote his column about being judged more on the content of, or more on the makeup of his audience than what was going on on stage. And rather than seeing a lot of, my experience from working, um, from seeing 18 groups of artists bring their work to fruition every year at Oval House, a measurable amount more doing work in progress, years as chair of the Theatre Production Fund panel for the Arts Council in London, looking at artists' proposals of what they as artists wanted to do, because they're project-funded. And I was not seeing artists responding to a new, new labour agenda of, you know, instrumental art. I was seeing artists doing what they wanted to do from their perspective of living in a globalised, multicultural, fabulous, disastrous capital city. Um, and then what I saw from Nicholas Heitner and a load of other people who looked very like him was a panic that they would suddenly be held to account for an art which was not particularly engaging with this. And not only was their art not engaging with it, but they were a team of people. I mean, in that very week, the National Theatre had appointed another 
associate director whose appointment was discussed in the editorial pages where it had never appeared on the jobs vacancies pages. You know, and these things are all joined up. If you allow artists to reflect who they are and what they do and have their say and engage in a public discourse, which we heard all about this morning, then the audiences similarly, who reflect that city and that multiculturalism, will come to see it. So if you're judging an audience, what you're actually judging is the quality and the relevance of the art, which I would have thought would be at the, at the height of a socialist art, uh, writer's uh, agenda if we don't want bourgeois content light art. So I saw people panicking, and then, you know, I have never known an artist work in response to a stated government policy. Artists work in response to what they see around them. You know, so this stuff about the new Labour agenda, froth. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. Sorry, it's not a question. Great. Uh, there's one uh, question up right up in the middle. There. Um, Jackie Bolton, I'm doing a PhD. Um, I just wanted to talk about the way that we're talking about cultural diversity. Um, uh, as I understand it, when the, when the term first came in, um, started being used by the Arts Council, it was actually quite a precise term, um, which was to do with black, uh, Asian, which I think was specifically Pakistani and Bangladeshi and Chinese um, groups. Uh, and I just find it interesting the way that we're talking about it today. It seems, ra race seems very, we seem to be talking about it in terms of something that you see. It's, it's um, it's it's an it's an image of somebody. We've talked about seeing lots of black faces on on the stage, or um, the fact the curious point that on on the radio, it it shouldn't matter it, who the actors are because presumably you can't see them. So it's it's something that you know it's to do with sight and seeing people, um, and I and I think that the way that um, I agree with M Mark entirely that uh, targets need to be set and agendas need to be forward advanced. Um, I think the way that it's been done in this kind of top-down directives um, being issued has resulted in a focus on representation in terms of visibility. So we think that if we see more Asian actors on stage that then we are engaging in and creating a more multicultural society. Um, but as, as people have already pointed out, uh, it's, it is about the decision-making and, and the power and, and the ability to um, be taking our own choices. Um, and I just wonder whether, whilst I don't think anyone, I don't think many people would agree with the, with the agendas, the way that they've been um, forced upon theatres and theatres haven't been able to necessarily have the strategies and mechanisms to deal with them creatively or interestingly, um, that representation isn't the same thing as, as agency or, or power. Okay. Um, would anyone on the panel like to come back uh, yeah. or on any of those points? Well, on, I mean, I think uh, it may not be the entire answer, but I mean, you have to start somewhere, and um, representation is a good place to start because it, it's what clearly wasn't there. I think, and I'm slight outsider to this, um, I think you're being too hard on. Um, theatre, because actually, which I never particularly expected to be supporting the Arts Council, but I do entirely on this, is that um, 
the parallel I'm drawing, if, if you look at broadcasting and if you look at newspapers where there haven't been targets and there hasn't been uh, any kind of serious initiative, um, it is terrifying what uh, the inertia, the results, and the return to that default. But actually, if you look at theatre over the last few years and you look at what Eclipse has done, and you, you know, I was in those audience at National Theatre for uh, Roy Williams' Sing Your Heart Out for the Lads and for Kwame Kwayama's play. Um, there is, I mean, I realise that it's problematic for some people to judge it, but you, you can only at that point judge it visually, and the audiences were visually different, which is something. If you've been going to the National Theatre for um, 30 years, something had happened there, and there'd been a shift, and that is um, uh, a kind of reach. What um, is interesting, the first speak from the audience from the Arts Council, I mean, everyone talks about uh, the BNP and the horror of that, and it clearly is, but it's, it's visible horror. What worries me is that um, I find, when I, the younger people I work with in, um, in broadcasting in particular, they will sigh in exasperation when I say, but um, every single contributor in that week's programs is white, and there's a sort of, oh, haven't we got beyond that? Um, and it's not, it, it's not to them, it, it's not racism, and it isn't, it's not conscious, but um, I think that the real fear, I've thought for a long time in this country, is that we will go from racism to color blindness without an intervening period um, of equality or tolerance. And just this, um, uh, and I, I've been really struck by this, um, of this thing of, oh, yeah, do, can't we just get the best people and the people we want as if those figures, were, as, as, as if those terms somehow had any meaning. Um, and so, as I say, to my surprise, I think, um, I think intervention and tar uh, targeting, monitoring, it, it is the only answer because otherwise you just stay where you are. But actually, I say I also think theatre has actually um, uh, there's there are problems clearly, but has clearly succeeded to an extraordinary degree if you compare it with broadcasting or newspapers. Yes, I'd like to bring in a success thought as well. Uh, and when you get to my time of life, you find yourself quite frequently saying this. I mean, thirty years ago, Africa, young Afro Caribbean actors in this country. Um, if they were really, really good, might get to play Puck or somebody's servant on the main stage at Stratford, or indeed at, on any stage at Stratford. Uh, and uh, even five or six years ago, it was a matter of moment and comment when, um, for the first time, the RSC uh, had an African-Caribbean actor playing uh, uh, an English king, Henry, Henry VI, it happens, much referred to uh, th this morning. I mean, the development on that and the change on that has been staggering in, in, in my lifetime. And I think colorblindness has worked. I think people genuinely don't look, I mean, if they're not invited to look, I mean, you know, if they're in a restoration player or a Shakespeare player, people, people no longer pay any attention to the, to, 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 to the color of the performer. And, and, and that's an indication, it seems to me, um, that if you keep on doing something firmly, firmly enough, uh, then it will um, then it will work, uh, and actually, interestingly, it seems to me that um, uh, it, it's an index. It's it's an index of how successful that's been. That that it clearly hasn't worked in other areas of of, uh, of the culture. The second success story I want to mention, and again, I mean, I agree. I've, there's been quite a lot of that a socialist playwright should think. I mean, I've been reporting. Uh, I mean, I started off by reporting. What, what I think is the dominant political position in this country. It's not mine, but it, uh, I think it's rather important that we, we realize that multiculturalism is a boo word for both the main political parties. 
uh, now, uh, for better or for worse, and in my view, for worse. Uh, but I think there's a tendency, by saying that nothing has happened and that things are completely invisible, there's a tendency for those people who work very hard to make un uh, 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 invisible voices visible, kind of to kind of give up. I mean, if nobody's noticed, if nobody's noticed how different the policy of my home theatre, Birmingham Rep, is, if nobody's noticed the number of young Asian women writers attracting uh, uh, considerable young Asian women audiences, if nobody's noticed the fact that it can have majority black audiences for black plays on its main stage, if nobody notices the fact that over, I think, five years, I'm doing this from memory, Stuart Rogers tomorrow may correct me, and there were t 12 plays by black people on, 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 you know, not all of them for full runs, but either presented or produced on the main stage. If nobody's noticed that, everybody say, oh, we're just as invisible as we were 40 years ago, um, then I, I, you know, I don't think that's a good place to start the conversation of how much further we have to go. I think that's my summation. Okay, thank you. Uh, Barbara, a quick point and then... Well, it's really just to bring it back to what's been said from, from the audience. Um, Hassan said it, Toby said it earlier on. Um, yes, I think a lot of progress has been made, and of course we should um, celebrate progress that is made. A lot of people in the theatre community have worked very hard to diversify uh, audiences, diversify the work that's on offer. But it's the power that hasn't diversified, and that is our next challenge. And they are different issues. They're completely different issues. Yes, there, there's colorblind casting. There's all sorts of wonderful things happening in some places. It's patchy, of course. But if you look at um, who is actually the, who the gatekeepers are, who's deciding who the artists are that have access to those audiences or to our fa major facilities, that's our next challenge. And I don't think we've yet found out the way to do it. Francis Rifkin. I'm just wondering who we is in this conversation, because frankly, um, you may have achieved certain things in what I would now call the mainstream. You're right, David, I have stayed in the place which quite legitimately you departed from to do something different. To say that you left because it wasn't working is not strictly true, because actually, one of the biggest developments in theatre since probably 1900 is the development of the alternative or the independent field of theatre. In equity, I'm the chair of the Independent Theatre Arts Committee in equity. We did some research and came up with 2,000 companies operating uh, within a particular three-year period, not the current. Some funded, some not funded. Um, there are companies and groups and individuals who go to all sorts of communities for all sorts of reasons, and you're right, they decide what they want to do, and they do those things. In dozens, they go and do them in dozens of different ways. Also, we're talking about theatre. We're not just talking about performance. Or we could say, whose performance are we talking about? There are dozens of different workshop companies, and I'm not talking about the commercial role-play companies here. I'm talking about creative artists working in workshop contexts in dozens of different ways with many different kinds of people. And when I talk about diversity, I mean people with learning difficulties, people with disabilities. I mean all sorts of different groupings and people, many of whom will be encouraged to take power over their work by the professionals working with them. So when we talk about theatre, I think it is time that the Arts Council and the government and commentators on the radio took on board very, very seriously this massive change in theatre in the, in the United Kingdom, or whatever you want to call it now, the disunited kingdom. <laughs> I really think so, because what's happening is that millions of people 
want, thousands of people want to work in theatre. A selection of them do. It's work for a start. We train artists in this country, then we condemn them to unemployment for life. Arts Council funding is inadequate. Credit crunch or not, a lot of the things you're talking about today in terms of decisions that you want to make are about inadequate, unrealistic funding bases to provide a sufficiently fertile territory to create the diverse theatre and consolidate it that we actually have. This does not mean, in my view, and I say this as a trade unionist and as, as, a, as an individual, taking money away from the National Theatre, but trying to make sure that the theatre of the nations that we have is adequately supported and properly recognised, and that the many artists in this room who fail, cannot get work, or cannot get recognition by having their work subsidised, can get that, and that should be taken seriously, not as an add-on. If MPs are grossly ignorant, which everybody says they are, then we must do something about it. It's intolerable <laughs> what's happening. Can we forget the parameters for a while and try to think of some new ones? Because frankly, all this stuff strikes me as really old-fashioned. The National Theatre is an old-fashioned institution, and so is the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's grossly out of date. It doesn't know that it's alive in terms of what's going on in this country, in our, in our, in our, in our nations here, in terms of theatre and creative arts. I think it's really time to rethink. We've got two more, uh, two more hands I can see up. Um, Ruth, uh, you had a point, and there's a... Hi, I'm Ruth from uh, Manchester Met University. Uh, I wanted to ask the panel. I went, um, I went for a shout outside the BBC yesterday. Um, goes without saying, I'm, I'm from Manchester and I'm seriously pissed off about uh, Nick Griffin being my European representative. I was with uh, Unite Against Fascism, who are an offshoot of the, the ANL. And I wondered, does the panel think what, the, what Unite Against Fascism was asking? was that Nick Griffin be denied airtime on the BBC because it's a publicly funded body for which we all contribute. And the argument is we know what they think. They're a bunch of fascists and we should stonewall them. Um, what do you reckon? I, I, it's a great question. I do want to take other, uh, some other uh, thoughts in, so maybe they'll tell you over tea. Um, uh, there's a question up there. Hello, um, Kate Horton from the Royal Court. Uh, just a couple of points, really. Um, David's comment about Henry VI at the RSC, I was, I was there for both of those Henrys, and I'm sorry to say, David, that I dealt with some pretty disgusting hate mail, um, even by the time we got to the second Black Henry. Um, I wouldn't like to go into what it said, but it was pretty horrific, and I'm afraid it goes to show that people are not accepting of anybody playing a Shakespearean role. We've got a long way to go yet. Um, just one experience that I wanted to share about a play called Random, which was by Debbie Tucker Green, uh, an English writer that I produced last year at the Royal Court, and it was about a random killing in South London. Um, and I think just in terms of diversity, it was quite interesting because it was produced by a working-class woman uh, directed by a middle-class woman, written by a black working-class woman, and um, actually starring one person, which was a 
black working class woman. It, I, for me, was a great piece of art, but that's my judgment. And um, in terms of you produce the work, the people who are interested in that work will come, was, for me, a shining example of that. The biggest issue was the critics, who said, um, I don't actually understand this English, so I don't really think it should be on. And I think it'd be quite good to talk about the media's treatment of the art as it tries to diversify its programming. Um, and just one last issue for me in terms of, as we talk about diversity and uh, definitions of it, um, in my position in the Royal Court, one of the things I'm very aware of, uh, both for audiences and practitioners and administration, is class. I love the middle classes, um, <laughs> but I do think that we should start talking about engagement in a broader way, particularly in terms of class. Uh, just some comments. Good. There's a, a comment right up in the far corner, and then one here, and I think that may have to be the last two. Sorry, Janelle. Thank you very much. Uh, Tunde Yuba. Uh, I've been sitting here since this morning, and I'm just getting angrier. Yeah. Um, I hear stuff, and I feel it's, it's patronizing and platitudinous. I'm, um, a comment earlier on about um, stopping uh, Nick Griffin from, from speaking on, on the BBC. I don't know why people voted for him. Some people didn't, but some people did. Uh, I think it's all right to talk about how we're going to get more black people and more Asian people and a more diverse uh, range of performers. But I think we need to be very, very careful. There is a big difference between affirmative action and tokenism. And I think we need to stop uh, trying to be tokenistic. If we really care, then it's not just about saying we care, it's about showing we care. Uh, but right now, I'm, I'm, I'm getting particularly annoyed at the sort of stuff that we're talking about back and forth. I, I am in strong agreement with the, the lady in the front row, because it seems like we've been around this corner a number of times. If we're saying that we haven't noticed the difference. It's because we haven't noticed the difference. Uh, yes, people can choose to give up, but other people could choose to work harder. Thank you very much. Okay, and then very last comment. It's going to have to be a very quick one, I'm afraid. If you can just pass the mic down. It is that row. Hey, I'm just trying to make this very quick then. Um, I'm Isabella, I'm a student here at the University of Warwick. Well, um, just like to talk a bit about the term multiculturalism, how it has um, uh, impact, impacted me today in this discussion. Um, I think it's a rather misleading term in the sense that uh, multiculturalism is supposed to embody a lot of different cultures, but um, in my experience of how it's been dealt with and, and all that, it seems more of just a dichotomous us and them mentality, whereby we try to embrace the other cultures all as one single group of body. And um, I'm afraid uh, that might not really be the best approach to do that, because it creates division within the different cultural communities, because it becomes a bit of a, a competition of sorts, like which ethnic minority really gets to be put on, because 
um, as long as we put on, it seems to me as though as long as we put on an ethnic minority, you know, we are already sort of addressing the issue of multiculturalism, but it doesn't really respect the very, very different experiences that are going on. Um, and just like to share that uh, I went for this playwriting workshop um, and it was sort of um, supposed to be uh, a training ground for uh, black writers and ethnic minority groups. And um, uh, I, I would really like to say that it was a very good opportunity, um, but in the process of it, uh, how it went was like, okay, we'll teach you the skills of playwriting. Um, you know, it should be about people, it should be about this and that. And uh, it was quite, it was quite disappointing for me because there wasn't really a sharing of experience. And also I felt like, oh, it didn't really matter what I wrote about as long as, oh, I was given a chance to do this playwriting workshop. And, uh, you know, I just, I just needed to like come up with a script of that, of that sort. And yeah, it, it didn't matter whether I wrote about my own voice, or in fact, maybe if I wrote about my own voice, it wouldn't be relevant, and uh, it might not be popular enough to be put on the stage. Of, so that, yeah, I just, just wanted to share um, what I thought about the term, as well as my own experience, um, uh, minor experience in British theatre. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, well, we, we, uh, we now have the usual uh, opportunity for tea. We've got uh, half an hour. Uh, but uh, before you go, can I just ask you to thank uh, the panel and, of course, everyone else who's been sharing. This conference was supported by the School of Theatre Performance and Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick, Warwick Arts Centre, the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Warwick, and the Department of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway.